Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, as we get there, let's open in a word of prayer. Amen. Amen. So as we've been working through order out of chaos, what we are once again doing is revisiting the apostles response to a request that's given in verse one. This is the way we want to begin to um, make application to a broad subject that's also very controversial, particularly where we are today. So you can know that First Corinthians 7 is making certain assumptions. One of them is that the people to whom he is speaking are believers. That's the first thing we want to mark. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter uh, 13 that mar- marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled. So marriage is a universal principle, but it has redemptive implications that can only be understood and benefited by those who are the objects of that redemption that's in Christ. So marriage applies to all. All human beings are called to it. It is a pre-Christian ordinance. Marriage preceded the need for redemption, but it also had inherent in it every aspect of what the gospel anticipated in terms of union, in terms of the two becoming one flesh, in terms of Christ being the head and we being the body. And how magnanimous God would be to share that with all of humanity, even though human beings themselves do not know God in his pardoning grace in Jesus. When they are married, they are occupying a redemptive paradigm that basically burdens them with the reality that being married, even though you don't know God, you are acting out one of God's highest covenant frameworks. That may set them up for the gospel if someone can explain it. So what we're doing in 1 Corinthians 7, and I took a few weeks to do this, and I dealt with this more particularly on Tuesday. I unpacked verse 1 and 2, for which the Apostle Paul lays out an admonition when he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote, it it is good for a man not to touch a woman, Nevertheless, this is what we call the qualifying term or the exception clause. That would be point number two in your outline. The exception that maintains spiritual what? Spiritual what? Right. So I'm saying that often to wake you up to really the reason for which the Apostle Paul now is going to address these conditions has everything to do with our spiritual fidelity. Spiritual fidelity is what's in view. Not marriage per se, but marriage is the framework. Spiritual fidelity is what's in view. What what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 7 is helping us understand there are conditions in our life for which spiritual fidelity can be aided and abetted, either in the context of marriage or in the context of the single status. But what is important to know about what we're talking about tonight is spiritual fidelity approval, spiritual acceptance, spiritual standing. Hence he warns in verse two, nevertheless, to avoid fornication. That's the big concept that he is talking to us about. And as narrow as that term is, it's also broad in its implications, as you guys might very well know. So uh, again, if you're thinking it through, we can can drill down into that in our Q&A. 
Heterosexual marriage over fornication is point number one. I just want to drill that home. The Bible knows of no other kind of marriage but heterosexual marriage. So for the believer, there is no other option for addressing fornication except for two categories. We'll see that in our third one. But the first one is heterosexual marriage. Okay, so that's what is very clear to the Apostle Paul. We dealt with the radical communion or radical co-laboring and radical co Uh, coexistence of the two persons in verse two, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband, have their own, have their own is the way we dealt with it on Tuesday. And then I drilled down into that on a very uh, covenantal and then a very practical framework. I, I argued this in our ROE and I'm arguing it now when a man or woman is married, they are engaging in the mutual dispossession of each other to the other person. When you become married, you are giving yourself to that other person. This is a mutual dispossession of yourself. And I said that's paradoxical because for married people, entering into marriage is largely the deceptive romantic con of really having a need for yourself. I told you that, right? It's paradoxical because you're marrying because you have a need. But the reality is you are marrying to meet somebody else's need, right? So once you enter into the marital covenant framework, you become, to, you become aware of that tension, that tension that is, oh, I'm here to meet someone else's needs. And that other person should become aware that they are there to meet that other person's needs, not in the place of God, certainly not. And we can talk about that, but particularly within the context of what constitutes the grounds for marriage, the twain becoming one flesh. And I told you that's a process that's not merely a covenant standing. Genesis 2:24 is not merely a covenant standing. When you get married, you are engaging in the be- becoming of one flesh. And so that's a process of learning how to cohabit and to communicate and to collaborate and to cooperate and then ultimately to cultivate a kind of unity of the two becoming one covenantally, the two becoming one expressively, the two becoming one in terms of purpose and designs and goals and witness and testimony. We talked about that on Tuesday. I'm just drilling back down because the ultimate teleos or the ultimate in paradigm model expression is that of conjugation. Conjugation gives us a terminus manifesta- uh, manifestation of the two becoming what? One. So it is to be understood that it is a goal, not the end in itself. It is a reward. It is a manifestation of effort put into by the two parties to walk in an agreement that leads to a unity and a harmony and a cooperation and a collaboration and a cultivation that produces an outcome of the two becoming one flesh. Does that make some sense? That's, that's work. That's work. 
Right. So the assumption is never in marriage that you start in conjugation. No, you start from individuated persons who are resolved themselves to be committed to a set of hierarchical principles that drive them towards one another. So that when we finally hit what is called attachment mode, attachment mode is not met with internal conflict of differences of opinions or feelings of neglect or feelings of betrayal, or a sense of being defrauded, or a sense of neglect, or a sense of domination, or a sense of tyranny. Did all those points come home? Because failure to understand the process is failure to have the outcome as God designed it. Failure to understand the process is failure to have the outcome as God designed it. We talked about that on Tuesday. If your head is not right, the outcome is not going to be right. If the motive is not right, the outcome is not going to be right. If the, if the process or protocols for achieving that teleos, that, that final uh, manifestation of, of union is not done in a proper way. We're dealing with the problem of point number two in our outline, the exception that maintains the spiritual approval. Uh, Sub point A, B says, do not withhold from each other, right? That was the admonition that the apostle puts down that we saw in verse five, defraud ye not one another. Do you see it? Defraud ye not one another. Do not withhold from each other. Do not take from each other. Those two subcategories infer what we talked about before, the absence of agape. Do not withhold. Do not take. So in the practical, in the rhetorical, in the relational interaction and exchange between the husband and the wife, if we're not engaging in a kind of dialogue that is not edifying, that is not building up, that is not affirming, that is not strengthening, that is not uh, truly correcting for coherence and for continuity, then we are in danger of defrauding. We're in danger of withholding. We're in danger of taking. Does that make some sense? Right. And so you everybody knows that, you know, the idea of intimacy starts with how we think and then how we talk. And that that conversation has to lead to levels of freedom and levels of confidence and levels of mutual um, respect and levels of mutual desire and, and then levels of mutual uh, anticipation and levels of mutual encouragement. All of those are prerequisites to a natural consummation process. Does that make sense? All right. So I'm glad I know it's Friday. I just want to make sure you get that. Those are the intangibles that should go into the uh, the pre conjugal state in order for that, that 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 what I'm going to call privilege to remain spiritual. The spiritual component, our privilege of, uh, of conjugation, I think I'm using one too many eyes, ease, but the privilege of it is the consequence of thinking properly about what leads up to that. That makes sense. And the way you can know it is because of what's going on in our, in our, in our present world around a failure to have a spiritual mindset around this beautiful 
uh, mystery called Christ and the church and the concept of agape or knowing. And this is eternal life that they might what? Know you, the only true God in Jesus whom he has sent and, 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 and the the signia or insignia of marriage allows for us to practice that kind of profound uh, um, developmental progressive entering into the holy of holies, if you will, that unique sanctity between the two that should not be known by anybody but them and God. And this is what I mean by the higher level of spiritual understanding that really should predicate that act. That's where the joy is. That's where the uh, offense is removed. That's where the confidence is sustained. That's where the happiness is um, secured uh, since that has to be done while biological imperative drives are there. When you get older, that, that practical element diminishes, but not the intangibles. They should remain there. Older people know what I mean. So point number two in your outline is predicated upon point, upon point number one, sub point C, the reciprocal giving or love of the what? Body. So the body is given to each other for that purpose. You don't need to be married if these are not body component relationship dynamics. All right, so this is really what we were working through. And again, you can, uh, you can be ready to drill down into that in Q&A if you're not too bothered by it. Under point number two, subpoint C, I want to close out with subpoint C. Uh, one of the solutions that I have discovered is critical to a qualitative marriage at all of these privilege levels is the priority of seeking the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. Look at it again, Matthew 6, 33. So um, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and everything else will be added. Take that as an adumbration that would frame the relationship. Now what I have to do, every time an opportunity occurs for me to interact with my spouse, is I have to prioritize the event of interacting with my spouse on spiritual grounds. I don't get to be carnal with her in a consistent way and expect a spiritual outcome. She does not get to be carnal with me in a consistent way and expect a spiritual outcome. Did that make some sense? Right, and so if we are seeking first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, we then know that the spiritual qualitative nature of our relationship has to predicate something that's privileged as intimacy so that it is not... Um, neglected, distorted, abused, misrepresented, bringing about the horrible outcomes that we have in our culture today. So now subpoint C is seek God for course correction if we're having problems. Prioritizing the kingdom of God, I call this unity and equality. Um, It is highlighting the commitment to a spiritual perspective and approach to consummation which comes with three or four categories or, or, or categories or qualities I want to call your attention to. If I am really committed to a quality relationship, then I'm going to have to have humility, right? Because when humility is present, then cooperation, understanding, agreement is highly possible where humility is. Does that make some sense? Right. So just think about in any relationship, uh, through pride comes contentions, right? So you can use that as a kind of antithesis. 
So when two people are in a carnal mindset, if you're in a carnal mindset, one or the other, then that's going to often lead to a level of contention because how can two walk together except they be? So if agreement is not there and we are not capable of remedying that disagreement, what's going to sustain that disagreement is the pride that leads to contention, as the proverb says. Uh, Only through pride comes contention. In other words, you can have a fault, you can have a difference, you can have a different view of, a, of opinion, you can have disagreement, you can have disunder, uh, misunderstanding. All of that's normal to our authentic selves. A man is not a woman, a woman is not a man, and your wife is not you, and you are not your wife, and you never will be. Your job is to try to take these two individual components and bring about a complementarian relationship. That is going to require humility to engage each other from different angles. That makes sense, right? All right, so humility is a quality that I'm seeking because it's going to help me stay in the realm of dialogue and discourse, particularly if we don't see things in the same light. Again, we can unpack them more fully. Having humility, having a sense of appreciation. Appreciation is another regimental attitude. I'm just going to put that out there for you because often what's occurring in relationships, particularly in the marriage context, is losing a sense of appreciation for your spouse. Every one of us have within us the seeds of diminishing returns, this law of um, entropy at the psychological level where... um, where we start to take each other for granted. Every one of us, children do that with parents, parents with children across the whole spectrum. Um, You know, familiarity begins to lead towards what? Contempt, contempt. You can actually take a thing wherein you have stated two or three years earlier, maybe even a year earlier, I swear till death do me part, I will love him and love her. And then a year later, contempt is all over the place. And and what I'm talking about is the idea of humility and appreciation. Appreciation is the ability to fight towards seeing the qualitative factors of that other person consistently enough to make sure that you don't distort reality around what you have. You don't distort reality around what you have, which is easy for us all to do. We're, we're, we're raised up in households often that don't teach us how to be thankful and appreciative for what we have. And so then when we get into our marriage, we bring often those bad qualities into the marriage. We can do that with God. And so I'm stating that um, when we're talking about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things being added, what I am simply saying is that the believer should strive to maintain as high a uh, quality of spiritual consciousness and spiritual perspective as he or she possibly can. Living in the realm of being spiritually mature, that's another way to put it, living in the realm of being spiritually mature will avail you to qualities like humility and appreciation and thanksgiving and things like um, 
um, low expectation or what I mean by low expectation is not raising the bar so high that you create a context for failure on the other person's part. We might also, you know, call that simply being merciful and gracious in terms of wanting the other person to win because we all want to win in the relationship. So these are very important qualities that I'm talking about and you can add to them and we can talk about them. All right. So this is what Paul is meaning when he says over in verse uh, verse uh, three and four, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise the wife unto the husband. I told you on Tuesday, due benevolence means a debt that we owe to that other person that amounts to um, us being committed to their well-being, to their happiness and to their pleasure. Their well-being, happiness, and pleasure, okay? Benevolence there is a compound Greek word that literally means their well-being, their happiness, and their pleasure, okay? So you can see how that can matriculate up. Well-being, happiness, pleasure, right? And it really is still in the context of a set of spiritual principles because it's pointing us to what the father has in the son. The father is well-pleased with the son. The pleasure of the father is in the son. The son does what the father asks him and the father takes utter delight in the son and says to the son in the agape expression of the father, ask me and I'll give you the uttermost parts of the world for your inheritance. That is the reciprocity of agape when we're operating at those higher principle levels. Does it make sense? All right, good, good. So that's the hard work for all of us. Being indebted, to show um, the, the necessary qualities and interactions with our spouse by which they are um, in a state of being well, happy, and pleased. Again, you and I can't do that by ourselves. We need God in that. But the reason for which God allowed you to enter into his franchise called marriage is so that he could work in you those qualities with another person to elevate them to elevate them. All right, good. So now we want to move into our third consideration, which I really uh, appreciate the way Paul is going to change the uh, subject now. Uh, Verse six, he says, but this I speak by permission and not by commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man has, has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. So notice what Paul does in verse six and seven. He creates a caveat. Here's what he says. I'm going to share with you as much as I'm laying out principles around a set of strict options when it comes to avoiding fornication. In my opinion, you should be as I am. And what he was saying was, I'm single. And now what we want to talk about briefly is the blessing of being single, because that's what he's talking about. Look at it again. For I would that all men were even as I my what? And then he gives another conditionality here. I'm always dealing with this one when people are asking me, am I fit to be married? But every man has his proper gift of God. This is every man or woman. One after this matter, another after that matter. What is the gift that Paul is talking about here? It's celibacy. It's celibacy. So you can write that down. We'll unpack that. He says, I wish that you were even as myself, but every man has his proper gift of God. This is going to be interesting. So under gift, you can create two categories, the gift of celibacy and the gift of marriage, the gift of celibacy and the gift of marriage. You can put those 
two categories because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with those two fundamental gifts. The first one we have just spoken about, he's going to explain that further on. And you and I know that marriage is a gift. Do you not know that? All right. Everybody's not getting married. Secondly, everybody should not get married. Right. And marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is necessary for proliferation and other things, but it is a gift. It's a proper gift of God. A woman, a wife is a good thing when found, but also a husband is a good thing when found. Correct. And within that within that construct, that's a whole process itself that I often am amused at how church over spiritualizes it to obtain that gift, but we won't go down that road at this moment. It, it should simply be understood, as I stated a couple weeks ago, even up to now, the man that does not have the gift of celibacy or the woman should prepare themselves to be the best person they possibly could in the event that the gift of marriage avails itself to them. So I'm going to say that one more time and then we'll, we'll look at point number three. Point number two. Number three, the man or the woman that has come to understand, I do not have the gift of celibacy because this is what Paul is getting ready to talk about. I do not have that natural contentment of self-restraint at the desire for intimacy on a physical level. I I do not feel that that's a, a quality that I possess easily. And so I struggle and I long for a relationship that allows for that kind of consummation to be part of my life. That person should not be living purely for the consummation. That person should be living for the process of developing and availing themselves so that if the door should open up for a mutual reciprocity in the context of covenant, they are the best version of themselves they could possibly be because that's going to help guarantee that at least on their part, they do not mess up the covenant. Did that come home? Right. So it's important for us to get that. And so look at what verse eight says. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. That's called an exegetical. In theology, you have a verse that's given a proposition. Verse seven was a proposition around a will that they were even as I. Verse eight is an explanation as to what he meant by that. You can see it now, right? Widow, meaning that you are no longer married because your spouse has died. Single, meaning are unmarried, meaning you never were married. So you are in the single state. I say, therefore, unto the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. Now, again, what I stated to you in the opening of our study, this is a um, description. This is not a prescription. So these are subtle sort of hermeneutical terms. A description is something that is uh, slated to address the context or the event at the time. It's not a standing law running through the totality of the subject matter you're dealing with. Paul is not teaching the church that they should never get married. Logic would say that, right? But he is saying at the present time, under the conditions in which the church at Corinth is in, and they were in a lot of trouble at the sociological level, obviously at the spiritual level, and and therefore they were not doing well in terms of how to properly understand marriage, particularly the kind of marriages that they were in. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And so the Apostle Paul was saying to the people 
the way he puts it down the line, he says, you who are unmarried and widowed, you're free. Remain free. That's the way he's putting it. You'll see that in a little bit. If you are free, if you have not entered into marriage, don't seek to enter into it. If you are bound, if you're tied into a marriage, don't seek to loose. These, again, are all um, descriptive. They are not prescriptive because he says a lot of things about binding and loosening and being married and not being married and and having space and all. All that's laid out in the text so that he's not contradicting himself and we shouldn't see it that way. But if you want to talk about it, certainly we may. Under point number three, the benefits of the single status. Sub point A. The first one is freedom from a what? A contending priority. Look at verse 32 through 34 of our text. This is what he will say. In verse 32, he says these words. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven. Um, They'll get there. You can look at it in your own time as well. I'm over verse 32. But I would have you without carefulness or anxiety. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Do you guys see that? Notice that. So what we mean by the benefits of the single status is that in an unmarried state, when you and I are operating at a high level of spiritually qualitative thinking and being, we're not spending every moment of our life wanting to be married. When you're operating at a high level of spiritual qualitative being, that's in in your single state. That means that you have the accessibility and the freedom to spend more time with God. That makes sense. All right, so not going to drill down too much into that, but it's very important because we can all deal with the um, ambivalence of if I'm single and I have time to read, I have time to pray, I have time to study, I have time to work on myself, I have time to build my relationship with Christ, I have time to discover my gifts, my calling, I have time to serve him. That's what Paul is talking about here. That is what I should be doing as a single believer. As a single believer, I should be living at a high level of devotion to and service to Jesus. That ultimately is going to sustain my constant spiritual happiness, whether I get married or not. I'm going to repeat that so it can come home just in case you're in the fog already. Um, When you are single, you get to enjoy, at least for a time, particularly if you don't have the gift of celibacy, what it means to be single. What it means to be able to wake up with the Lord on your mind. And little bit else. I mean, you do have a bunch of other responsibilities. We get that. We do know you have to work. We know you have to take care of this, take care of that. You could have a ton of responsibilities, but the, at the top of the list is your fellowship with God, your joy in Christ, your freedom to sow to the Spirit and not just to the flesh. And while you have that freedom to do that, you get to discover that not only that you want to do it, but that you can do it and that you do do it. I want to, I can, and I do. That becomes a manifestation of the authenticity of your profession as a Christian. As a single man, as a single woman, here's what you get to do. 
You get to prove whether or not Christ is in you of a truth, whether or not you have truly had that incorruptible seed planted in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is your highest pleasure. You get to prove that you know that you belong to him because now you have time to aspire to the things of God. You get to prove that you are a part of the kingdom of God because everyone in the kingdom is called to service to King Jesus, whether married or single. But certainly if you're single, what Paul is giving you is an advantage here, an advantage of being exclusively the Lord's. How he or she may what? Please the Lord. That's powerful, isn't it? Right. I mean, if you can take on that kind of conceptualization around what it means to be a believer and then to be able to see it working out in your life, what you're going to discover with that kind of fruitful communion with God is a diminished sense of an attitude of inadequacy or an attitude of discontentment or an attitude of diminishing, or an attitude of want, an attitude of need, an attitude of longing. You're going to see it diminished. That only follows. Is that true? I'm going to say it again, and then we can wrestle with it in the Q&A. If you recognize that as a single person, you have now the opportunity, because you may not have it all the time, to spend time with God in prayer and studying the word of God and meditating on his precepts and calling on God to draw near to you as you draw near to him, asking God to actually show you where you need to be focusing, where you need to be working on this, where you need to be putting this away and putting that on, which is your communion with God. You know, those are wonderfully privileged opportunities that when once you are wrapped up in other responsibilities, you can't do. That's exactly right. <clears throat> so this is why Paul said it. I would that you would be like me. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. You and I can visualize that, right? Verse 33. Notice what he says in verse 33. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Well, that goes back to what I was saying about the due benevolence and about the agape, because the agape is about how I might help meet her needs. I married her to give to her. She married me to do what? Give to me. I married her to give to her. So if I am actually going to execute that duty in giving to her as God gives me, I'm in one sense, doing it as unto the Lord. So there is a simultaneity there, certainly. Lord, as you give to me, I'll give to her. But on the other hand, as I'm giving to my wife, I am not giving as much time to the Lord. That needs to be understood because in my giving to my wife, remember, each man has his own wife. Each woman has her own husband. That person comes with a whole project, a whole domain, a whole arena of needs and responsibilities and, 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 and possible liabilities. That's true. Is that true? Well, it's important for you to know. 
that person doesn't come as a complete package, self-contained, not having a need for you to unpack or maintain or augment or modify at her request or his. No, they do. And, and, and when we understand that deeply and profoundly, what we're talking about is giving of ourselves. So now we're entering into an intentional diminishing of ourselves for the edification of that other person that puts me in attention. So to the degree that I diminish myself, I need God even more because I'm diminishing. I'm diminishing my time. I'm diminishing my resources. I'm diminishing my thought processes. I'm doing a lot of things and giving myself away to her or to him that requires God's help to sustain that process. Otherwise, it's unsustainable. Did that come home? It's important to know. (laughs) This is why the disciples said in Matthew chapter five, Lord, who can do these things? That's what they said. And then Jesus actually echoed. He actually predicated what Paul said. Everybody has his proper gift of God. That's what he said in Matthew five. And so um, when we look at the text, this is what we see in verse thirty three. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the what? How he may please his wife. This is a job. This is resources. This is food. This is covering. This is everything. And then he says in verse 34, there is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. I'll get into that in our next point because that's extremely uh, important, too. I'll get there. Uh, Difficult language. But under point number three, the benefits of the single status. So point A, freedom from a contending priority. Um. Uh, which is a wife or a husband. Subpoint B, freedom from internal what? Compulsion. Look at verse 35 through 37. Verse 35 says, In this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Because what Paul is doing is predicating attending to the Lord as more important than attending to the important things of marriage because they have a distraction component to it. But look at it. Verse 36. But if any man think that he behaves himself uncomely towards his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them what? Very complicated text. Most people don't get this. This is about the um, father giving away his daughter in marriage because the daughter has reached the flower of her age and she is ready for marriage. But obviously in that culture, the daughter can't give herself away. So in a marriage, if it's properly done, who gives this woman away in marriage? So there's a maintenance of the nuclear family and the extended family that comes together in a covenant agreement that allows the daughter to be um, given away in marriage so that her aspiration to be a a woman with children and family can be met. And the, the father is negotiating that. Does that make some sense? All right. So think about a troublesome environment, a culture that's in chaos. Uh, the church at Corinth was in the um, the middle 50s, AD 56, AD 57, AD 58. And Rome was very unstable and wars were about to break out and conflicts everywhere and persecution was happening to the church. 
There was not all that much stability going on. And a father had every right to consider whether or not he should give away his daughter in marriage, particularly if he's giving his daughter away in a uh, in a social context that could be filled with problems. Does that make some sense? I'm going to say it one more time. I know we live in an alien society where everyone, the moment we come out the womb, we are autonomous creatures that make our own decisions and our mom and daddy don't mean anything. You know that's where we are today. But in traditional cultures, a young lady never went out and just kind of did her own thing. It was always done through the permission of the parents so that the process of marriage stayed in this kind of, again, reciprocity of oversight and governance that allowed the transition of the daughter from her nucleus family to be given to a family safely in order that she might have everything she needs to be in that marriage. Does that make some sense? Of course. Of course it does. And so this is why Paul is using it. He does not sin. Let him do what he will. He does not sin. Let them what? Marry. Because what the Corinthians were saying is, should we be getting married in these difficult times? And if we should be getting married in these difficult times within the framework of that question is, should I be allowing my children to get married? That's right. Again, we don't hear that today because our children are grown at 10 years old and do whatever they want to wrongly. But if we're doing the right thing, our children are inquiring of mom and dad, is this really the time to even get married? Remember, they were getting married at 14, 15, 16 years old. Just letting you know. Verse 37. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and he has decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. Verse 38. This is Paul speaking to the parents about either one. So then he that giveth her in marriage does well, but he that giveth her and giveth her not in marriage does what? Paul is giving us insights into what he saw was a dangerous time in the culture. And you can take Matthew 24 and hear the echo of Jesus' words when he says, Woe unto them that give suck in those days. Or that of what child. So here's the here's the um, the application we can draw out of that and we can talk about if you want to. I think that there are times in human history where things are so unstable that marriage is not a good thing to do. Right. I think there's a time in human history where uh, marriage would not be the if you're dealing with a a, a situation where there's famine and you don't know when that famine is going to let up. If you're dealing with pestilence and disease and you don't know when that's going to let up, if that's going to carry 10, 20 or 30 years, why would you marry your children off to a situation where the other parties can't actually meet the needs of those covenant terms? And you possibly can. Does that make some sense? Of course it does. I would not give my daughters away to the instability of a relationship with somebody else if they're poorer and broker than I am. (laughs) No. Y'all can go on walks. Whatever. (laughs) She's then here. You know, I got 10 more cows than you do. I mean, I'm just letting you know. So I'm just kind of giving you the, 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 and, and am I not, help me now, am I not being a good dad? Right? I'm just being a good dad. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just going, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to be walking in, I'm, I'm imagining myself in Kenya or in Uganda or somewhere. I mean, and I'm walking out in the wilderness and there go my baby dead. 
her and her husband, they didn't starve to death because they really weren't prepared for the arduous nature of the difficult times when they could have stayed at home with their folks. Does that make some sense? All right, good. Just want to leave it there. I'm sure you have more contemporary stories to add to it when we get to Q&A. Um, under point number three, then let's see here. Yeah. Uh, verse 35 through 37, the apostle Paul lays out a very good thing. Look then at verse 38. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. But if she but she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the what? Look at Paul really driving home. Hey, don't do it. But that is only descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Did that come home? It's only it's only because the times were so difficult. So we actually touched this on point number four. The gift of marriage satisfying the what? Non celibate. Right. The gift of marriage is satisfying the non celibate. That's what verse nine underscored for us. Notice what it says over verse eight. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and the widow is not good for the it is good for them to abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, there it is. Let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn. That text has to be actually somewhat investigated because it can set one up for the faulty notion that marriage is only about sex. Would you agree with that? Of course. Of course, a lot of shallow interpretations have been employed around that, that assertion that marriage is only about sex. Obviously, it's not. But when you're dealing with, again, the binary of point number one, the binary of point number one is that in order to avoid fornication, in order to avoid fornication, heterosexual marriage is the option. Y'all got that? Right. In order to avoid fornication. But as I stated before, marriage is not to resolve fornication. Because you can still fornicate in your marriage. And you can fornicate at the multiple levels of which fornication can be properly interpreted as being unfaithfulness to your spouse at the level of exclusivity in the context of sexual intimacy. Both the man and the woman can be guilty of all kinds of sexual crimes. Now, I'm being dramatic with the word crimes because they're not necessarily legal, but you can be a major uh, a major practicer of infidelity in the context of marriage even though you have the covenant paper. Did that make some sense? You can definitely be unclean. You can be defiled. You can be, um, you can be unspiritual. That's what we we're talking about. So if you're not committed to spiritual principles that creates a commitment and resolve to the application of exclusivity, exclusivity, which is a principle of maturity. If you're not committed to that, then you're going to be all over the map in terms of your desires not constrained by maturity. See what I'm getting at? Very important. So if they cannot, if they cannot contain, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn. That phrase burn there has two connotations. One is to burn in your passions. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, men burning in their lust after men and women burning in their lust after women. Romans chapter one. You, you know that I don't even have to expand that. You and I live in a red hot oven today. Right. So we know what that means. 
Um, but Paul says, OK, to resolve it, get married. Marriage is a beautiful way to um, have the benefits of conjugal relations. But it's going to require and cost you the necessity of a qualitatively spiritual character not to diminish that privilege and turn it into something that ultimately will be dissatisfying. Did that make some sense? It's going to be dissatisfying if you and I are not spiritual. So I'm going to kind of sum this thought up before we get into Q&A. Marriage at the level of sexual intimacy can never be satisfying where it is not framed by, predicated, and preceded by a qualitatively mature attitude. It just can't because no one person can meet the real need of your soul that is symbolized by the physical passion for what the beauty and splendor of conjugation can bring. Does that make some sense? What the, what the, uh, what the blessings of conjugal union can bring, what the blessings of conjugal union can bring and all that it's doing when it's done is actually affirming a whole process of collaborations that lead up to that joy. That makes some sense, right? Right. So again, disconnect that litany of of collaborations from the mechanics of sexual activity and it's nothing but animal expression. Did that come home? That's all it is. And it can be very anticlimactic. It can be, for those of us who know intimacy, we know that that's not an automatic, you know, cash cow for satisfaction. And then you come to discover that you are actually more than a biologically imperative driven creature. There's much more to soul satisfaction than orgasms, you know, and all of that. That can become so expressly insignificant when the soul is opened up to greater pleasures in the sight of God. Does that make some sense? Right. And so the the issue would be around um, around marriage is how to make sure that if we should enter into that paradigm and enter into that gift, enter into that blessing, that if we should have the privilege of employing intimacy, because there are people who are perfectly capable of being married and that option is not in play. And they can be completely happily married. That should follow as a logical syllogism from my whole argument, right? They can be completely happy not actually entering into that ultimate uh, conjugal expression because happiness can be manifested at so many different levels. Uh, Friendship is to me like the biggest one. Like friendship to me is like the biggest one because friendship comes with so many components of mutual understanding, mutual edification, mutual collaboration, mutual support, mutual strength, mutual edification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, what a beautiful thing. What a, what a beautiful thing. You, then you're, you know, you're in the latter years where physically your body, like Sarah had says, the way of woman, women with me is gone. 
but me and Abraham are still killing it on so many levels, business levels. I told you that's Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. That, yeah, just do it right. They're just killing it, you know, running businesses, advancing the kingdom, going here, going there, doing this, doing that. And, uh, and, and then in their old age, you know, God blesses them with, with that spiritual fruit. Um, so it's extremely important to get. Point number four in our outline, I think I already dealt with that. I'm almost uh, done. The gift of marriage satisfying the non-celibate. And that would be sub point A, the need for a spouse, right? And then sub point B, the pursuit of a what? All right. So and then sub point C says the what? Uh, so we're, we're going to just touch on those just a little bit. All right. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, I don't want to do false advertisement. Marriage is a burden. That's what Paul was saying. Look at it over in verse 10 again. And unto the married, I command yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Do you see it? Why? It's a burden. She ready to go. I'm going to leave that alone because it's just like right there to me. I don't know if you don't see it. I don't know if you don't see it. (laughs) But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. Here they go. They ready to go down to the courthouse. They ready to trap this. Why? Because it's a burden. And you can read into that burden all kinds of uh, transgressions and all kinds of um, neglect and all kinds of extremely counterproductive, countermanding practices that makes a person want to jump. Am I talking to real people or am I talking to a bunch of superficial carnal Christians that think the moment you say yes, marriage is perfect until you die? Okay. One of the things I dealt with for many, many years, for many, many years, is the old school interpretation of marriage till death do us part under all, under no circumstances. Will we ever not separate, divorce, or whatever? Okay, that's you, but Jesus didn't say that. And Paul didn't say that. And they didn't have to. And Jehovah didn't have to say it. Jehovah could have just said from here till you, till you die. He didn't have to give us Deuteronomy chapter 24, the, the, the uncleanness clause. He didn't have to give us Matthew 10. He didn't have to give us Matthew 19. He didn't have to, didn't have to give us Mark 9. He didn't have to. There didn't have to be one exception clause anywhere in the scripture if he just wanted to say once you're married, that's it. Did y'all get that? He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to create all of these different scenarios where the church has fought hermeneutically and exegetically around all kinds of interpretation forever. And and we have. And I was in those phrases even in my my younger days. I never did buy into uh, till death do us do us part. Um, Either I die from her killing me or she died from me killing her or us mutually kill each other and then we're free. I never believed that. And that could have been a prejudice on my part. But as I wrestled being in the reform community all my life, and I, I knew the legalistic interpretations of it, too, coming from <clears throat> branches of Christianity that did not uh, at all want to accept the interpret what is called the exception clause of, of, of Mark 9 and Matthew 10 as including adultery. Um, the way they interpreted it was if, if she was caught committing fornication before marriage, you could let her go. 
But once you get married, she can commit fornication all she wants to and you can't let her go. I'm like, that's crazy. But I'm coming from the hood. That just sounded crazy to me. Like, that's crazy. I can let her go, you know, if she's committing fornication before, but then afterwards she can go all over the mountaintop and I just can't do nothing about that. I'm like, that's crazy. Now I got why the disciples said, man, you better leave those chicks alone. That's my interpretation. Um, so, you know, people argue with me. I don't care. There are four grounds. Adultery. Addiction. Abuse. And abandonment. Adultery. Addiction abuse, and abandonment. Now, you can stay with all of those because there's always, you know, the potential for people to correct. And we would recommend working on it if correction can be had. Would you agree with that? But yes, and the Lord made it really difficult for me because when Barbara and I got married, we had four daughters like right away. Four of them in one year. I'm kidding. But we did have four. Natural, too. None of our kids, none of Barb didn't have any difficulty. So I have four daughters. And it immediately was dawning on me that I got to give these women away. Right? Which I'm getting ready to do in a couple months. Again. Um, well, yeah, that's a burden on a dad. Right? That's a burden on a dad. What? What knucklehead is she going to try to drag up in this house to ask my daughter in marriage? Right? That's, that's tough, right? And I'm thinking, but what if the boy is crazy? I'm going to have to kill him. So I got all kind of wild stuff going on in my head, right? I said, I hope my daughters grow up and be nuns. Just all of them just grew up and be nuns. Now, you know I'm, I'm messing with you guys. Kind of yes and kind of no. Because, right, because so, so the joy of having, like, I have excellent son-in-laws. I'm just telling you now, they're like my own boys. They call me dad. It's all cool. And so that's a great thing, but it's not a given, you know. So I have to always tell them, come here, son. You will die. Just letting you know, you will die. And I will be preaching in prison. And I'll tell them why. Right, just to kind of give them a little motivation to just, you know, just walk away if you have to. Just walk away. Just look, they all crazy, bro. They all crazy. You have to walk away. Just walk away because they all crazy. Um, Adultery, it has deep wounds. You, You can change the whole psychological dynamic at levels only people who know that betrayal understand. And uh, addiction becomes a extremely problematic element because it almost always becomes like an underlying nexus for abuse and adultery and abandonment. Does that make some sense? It really does. And so I, I tell, I tell, you know, young men, you better have control of yourself. You better have control of yourself. This issue of addiction to anything but Christ makes you a liability to the whole world. Hear me. 
every man, every woman in here, if you're not committed to being addicted to Christ, you are a liability to humanity. You must know that. You will betray your mama. You will betray your daddy. You will betray your children. It's true. It's absolutely true. And so, you know, so I want to be married. Well, how bad do you want to be married? Because if you have an addiction problem, marriage is requiring you to have a greater addiction to it. Does that make some sense? Right, right. Because, you know, you're marrying into family. This is what I always tell you. Look at me. You're going to have to see my face, young man, for the next 500 years. And then you're going to have to see me in eternity, too. Do you you really want to marry my daughter? Right. Because that really is the case. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little funny, but it's true, isn't it? Like you don't get to marry her and then just go live on another planet. No, no. You, you're marrying into somebody's family. And so you either become an aid and abetting of the happiness of two families or more. Or are you going to be the sorrow and pain of two families or more? Right. This is what we have to understand. And so this is what I meant by Matthew 6, being at the foundation of all of your motivational drives, because if the kingdom of God is actually your hierarchical principle for existence, then you're going to try to do right by everybody. See what I'm getting at? You're going to try to do right by everybody. Um, very, very important there. So and then <clears throat> what we get in Proverbs 24, 27, pull that up. I'll just look at that one as the pursuit of a spouse. Just the last principle. Then we'll do some Q&A. We'll get out of here. Prepare your work without. Make it fit for yourself in the field and afterwards build your house. That trifle principle can be applied in many different ways. The first clause there is making sure that you have a very solid conceptual plan of what it means to enter into an enterprise. It would be the metaphor of creating a blueprint for the home you want to build. You make sure that blueprint is is to scale. You make sure that you haven't fudged. You make sure that all of the components that go into that blueprint, that plan, that conceptualization corresponds to reality. Because the next thing you're going to do is you're going to make it fit for yourself in the field. You're going to go from the blueprint to cutting the tape of the ground that you're going to build that house on. Then you're going to build that house. That house is going to be spiritual. That house is going to be emotional. It's going to be psychological. It's going to be sociological. It's going to be characterological. It's going to be who you are and what you do because you're getting ready to build a home and then you're going to ask somebody to occupy that home. Did that come home? Right. That's what a man is called to do. He's called to have a plan and then be able to put that plan concretely into a space, a domain. So that when he has the blessed benefit of drawing to himself a a female that's willing to um, enter into the deep profundity of intimacy with him, she can know that he has a highly plausible plan and that her plan actually fits with his plan. Like, yeah, I would recommend that the, the female that comes into the equation also has a plan. And so when she comes with her plan, you take your two plans and look and see whether or not those plans can merge. Because they're going to have to merge at these tiers that I'm talking about. You're going to have to have the same worldview. 
You're going to have to have the same driving commitment to the God of that worldview. You're going to have to understand that worldview in terms of your calling as a person committed to producing economically. A biblical man is a producer, provider, and what? Protector. And then you're asking for a wife to enter into that collaboration with you. Y'all both can produce. Y'all both can protect. Y'all both can provide. Does that make sense? You can do, most of humanity operates out of that kind of model. But those, those um, conceptualizations, those, those schemas, they're called schemas, a schematic is a schema, have to harmonize with a, uh, a biblical approval that, that God lays down for you so you can have God in the equation, right? Three are better than two in that context. We want God's presence and approval on this plan. So going in, you have the joy of insight and, and motivation because you have what Matthew, uh, what Proverbs 24, 27 it says to try it. Prepare your works without, make it fit for yourself in the field and afterwards do what? Right. And now you are entering into the mystery of the triune God who before the world began had a plan. And he brought that plan into being when he created the heavens and the earth. And that seed came into the world and established the grounds for building his own house, which is the church of the living God. That is a Christocentric, God-exalting, Christ-centered marriage paradigm. You guys got that, right? I need somebody to walk for me. Run the mic. Let's do some Q&A. If I can get somebody to labor for me. So whatever, whatever you want to bring up on the topic in our text, we can. If, if it's outside the text, I don't mind chatting with you guys about that. Um, be, be, be glad to hear from you all. Anybody, raise your hand. Let's get at it. Don't be afraid. There are no wrong questions. And this is all family. Lisa? Um, I was reading or listening to Corinthians today, and it said that if you have a, a husband or a wife that's a non-believer, that you can sanctify them with your belief. So I'm kind of getting a little mixed up with if you're married, you uh, it's like it's like you have a windmill and wind if you don't have a believing spouse. But then if you have a if you get married and you have two believers, then you don't have that much wind for the windmill to go. So I'm kind of getting mixed up because it sounds better to be like by yourself and celibate or to have to live with someone that's a non-believer than to live with someone that's a believer. So I'll work with you on that. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I know it's flawed, but I just can't. Right, no, well, I told you there's no bad question because you're thinking it through. So here's what the text says in verse 15. Um, but if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother or sister. Now, I better start at verse 14. Um, or verse 13. And the woman which hath an husband that believes not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So this is, this is where there is a level of benevolent, mutual, uh, human charity existing, coexisting between a believer and a non-believer. That, that is a very common scenario in the world. In fact, I would argue that's more common than two believers. 
Just, I'm just drop that in your lap. I know we all are to believe that our spouses are saved, but you get married for two years, then you, you're thinking half your marriage, they're not saved. I can just tell you that now. I'm just putting that out there. Um, but the reality is, is that frequently, and this is what the Corinthians discover, is that one of the two spouses were not saved. So think about this. This is what I meant by tribulation. Because what trouble does is it will expose either the presence of a rootedness in reality around who you are in Christ or the absence of a rootedness of reality as to who you are not in Christ. Troubles will prove whether or not your spouse is saved. Did that come home? It's important for you to know. So here's a scenario where trouble comes in. This is I told you the context is trouble and you come to discover that your spouse has a ton of problems. Um, and now you're wondering, should you leave them? And what Paul is saying is, if that person is pleased to dwell with you, and we haven't, we haven't, we haven't discounted the four A's that I talked to you about. If that person is uh, pleased to dwell with you, if there is a peace there, is there, if there's a harmony there, if there's a, a grounds for collaboration there, then what you have is the potential for a missionary outcome. That was our third category, a missional objective. Right, so uh, think it through. If in fact, maybe our husband or our wife pretended to be a believer so they could marry you, because it's always the case. You know, all of my son-in-laws were Christian when they came to me. You know, you, you're going to get saved if you want to marry her. Yeah, of course I'm saved. Mr. Gets that, I'm saved. Right. Uh, And then maybe 10 or 15 years down the line, you discover he or she not really saved, but they get along with each other. So he might come to church every now and then she might come every now and then, but they get along. They have children. What Paul is saying is he's sanctified by you in this sense. This is called covenantal sanctification. So are the children, he says over in verse uh, 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in this place. Uh, And nope, I'm back at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are also sanctified. Meaning in the household where there is a true believer functioning out of a real relationship with Christ, Therefore, biblical truth is being disseminated in the home. Prayer is being manifested. The character of Christ is showing up in different ways. Both the husband and the children are now experiencing a kind of conscience binding of the word of God in their life. A conscious binding of the word of God doesn't mean they're saved. It just means that they are sanctified unto the gospel in a way in which a person growing up in a a non-biblical household would never have those benefits. So if the wife is behaving herself as a true believer and her husband's behaving, though he's not a believer, she's going to work, she's going to church, she's engaging in, in ministry, but she's also loving her husband and making sure that balance is there. Um, that at length may win him to Christ. But that's not a guarantee. This is what the text is saying over in verse 16. For who knows, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? Or who knows, O man, whether you shall save your wife? You don't know, but it's possible. 
So if you remember, the trend in 1 Corinthians is that they want to get out of the marriage because they want to serve God like Paul is serving God. And what Paul is saying is, you're in the marriage. That's, that's where he speaks over in verse 20 and 20, 22, uh, 20 to 22. He says over in verse 20, let every man abide in his same calling wherein he was called. Are you called being a servant? Don't be, don't be anxious about it, but if you may be free, uh, use it rather. Are you called uh, being the Lord's, uh, for he that is called being the Lord's servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that is being called being a freeman is the Lord's servant. And then he goes on to talk about, but every man, let every man wherein he is called therein abide. And what he talks about is in the context of marriage. If you're married, stay married. If you're free, stay free. That's what he was saying. And so the idea in this context that Paul is letting them uh, know is your, your circumstance may not automatically merit you leaving and it may not automatically merit you staying. You have to look at the conditions to see what that merits. That's why we're looking at it. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. Now, again, there you go. Think about this. If marriage was absolutely without condition to be stuck in and with, no matter what the circumstances were, there'd be no way Paul could use that kind of, uh, that kind of conditional clause. If he wants to leave, let him leave. What I, that, that amounts to divorce. If she wants to leave, let her leave. That amounts to divorce. That's what it amounts to. And so, because what he said was, the believer is called to peace. Right. That's what he's saying. He's laying that out. He's saying you have been called to to peace. If that's if that's um, if, if that person is struggling like that, let him go. You have been called to peace. I'm trying to find that verse so that you can see it for yourself. But it's in there. And, and once you uh, find it, lift it up. Oh, there it is. Uh, verse 16. Uh, but God has called us to peace, the last line. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to what? Right, and so one of the sort of hierarchical principles that I, I, um, I promote and drive home in a marital context is that marriage is not a justification to create a hellhole. Marriage is not a justification to live like hell, to be arguing and fighting and, and, and destroying one another. That's not marriage. It's not marriage. It's not marriage anywhere in your Bible. Nowhere in your Bible does God tell the man he get to beat his wife down and she doesn't get to go anywhere. Nowhere in your Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does God allow the woman to beat the man down. Now, he does say you guys got to put up with each other and a whole lot with each other. There's no doubt about it. And you can read that in the Proverbs. Let you read it for yourself. Why God says when you build your house, build a big enough house. (laughs) Build a big enough house so she can live on the west wing while you live on the east wing. Until y'all figure this thing out. Um... But certainly um, adultery, 
continu continual adultery and, and abuse and all that. That's not a good thing. So the point that we were stating in that text is not a hierarchy of what the conditions would be best. Again, in that context, because of the trouble, it would have been better for nobody to be married. But marriage is necessary. You and I are here because they did marry. Um, the goal would be, we would ideally want two believers to be married. We would want two believers to be married. But I'm going to say something about that while we have time. I'm not real confident in that being the um, certifier of a good marriage. Believers can be extremely raggedy. All you have to do is read your Bible. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll notice that from Abraham to Jesus, the marriage of believers were difficult. If you read those cases carefully, they were difficult. And particularly as we got closer to Christ, even more difficult. Paradoxically, as we move from the patriarchal period to the matriarchal, uh, to the uh, monarchial period, the kings were much more carnal and ungodly, though they were believers, than would be comfortable for me to say, be like David. David had seven wives and 13 concubines. Right. Then Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He didn't even know any of his wives, but for about two months out of the whole 40-year period. He had a bunch of kids, as did David. And I could talk to you about the complexity of what were called affinity marriages so that you don't just get all bizarre and all bent out of shape. Because when you're poor and hungry and you understood messianic expectation, in many cases being the concubine of a wealthy king, therefore having your secure income and home and children, was much more... Um, anticipated than to be single and to be without or have to put up with a rabble rouser who could barely pay the bills. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the world we grew up in. And yes, it still happens today. So you, you know, if one really wanted to investigate that, you could just raise your hand and we could talk about it. I don't, I don't want you to be deluded by kind of Pollyanna falsehood notion that Every woman gets to have her own prince from the beginning of time till now, because if we think through the nature of marriage, much of it was a business oriented design from the beginning. And God allowed it that way for the purpose of proliferation of the seed. Did that come home? Right. So, um, but that certainly would have impacted the one-on-one, the mono imano, the face-to-face, the, -face, the person to person relationship, right? Because your husband is a dignitary. He's a ruler. He's going all the time. He's doing all kinds of business. But you got three kids by him. 
and you have a status in society and you're above most other women and you've got a secure income. Ah, see what I'm getting at? It's much more. You got to get it, Mike. You, and can't nobody see your hand down it. Don, can't nobody see this. All right. So who has the mic next? Miss um, <laughs> Jackie. Donna, raise your hand. Donna, raise your hand. There you go. You got brothers over here, too. Go ahead on. Go on. Go on. Go on, Jackie. You said. You got to put the mic close to your mouth, sweetie. Marriage is um, also to seek God, right? Is that correct? From Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33 is a premise for a good marriage is you prioritizing God so that that marriage can maintain a high qualitative presence. Marriage is not automatically a qualitative exercise or event or mutual experience where God is not at the center of it and is not the driving factor. And so we have to be spiritual, correct, with each other in a marriage. But we're also spiritual with Christ because we have to worship him. We have to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no but there. That's okay. an and. That's a both and. and. Okay. So think about this for a moment, because I don't want you to be confused. Because it's a great question, and what I like for us to do is organize our thoughts really well. Okay. There is no time in which you worship God independent from human beings. There's no time in which you worship God independent from human beings. There's no time in which you worship God independent from human beings. Human beings are the vehicle by which you worship God. Human beings are the vehicle by which the truth comes to you and you enter into a collaborative worship of God with other people. When you depart and go into your own little space for the short period of time that you do. Are you keeping up with me? You guys listen carefully. When you go into the short little space that you do and you read your Bible, you are joining with other human beings. Who who wrote your Bible? Angels? Are y'all keeping up with me? It's always the communion of the saints. So what I'm saying is the vertical is always brought into practical manifestation through the horizontal. God always uses the community of his people to facilitate the vertical fullness that we experience individually slash collectively. And how much more so in the context of a husband and a wife. And if a husband and a wife relationship is well, the husband is facilitating the vertical or the wife is facilitating the vertical. Even if he's over in his corner, he's actually enjoying God via her and vice versa. You see what I'm saying, saying sis? But now both of y'all could or neither of you could be pursuing God. And so now you're in a carnal marriage where the only thing that matters are material things. See what I'm getting at? Right. I, 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 I enjoyed the fact that I know that my wife prays for me. How about you? Right, because I am a knucklehead. And so, um, and she, she is absolutely elated that she has a husband that prays for her. 
because she's a difficult woman too. And, and that's what marriage is about. When you understand it at that level, the security you have, if you know you actually have a true believing spouse, is that they're not going to betray their God and betray you. Did that make some sense? Yeah. Right. They, they, they can, you may not get along. Y'all may fight like cats and dogs because you got a bunch of residual cane-like genetic, epigenetic qualities running through your veins. But when y'all go to your corners, you know you're praying for each other. Miss Jackie, you good? You good with that one, or is there some something else before I go on? Nah, but Miss Jackie, put that mic to your mouth. Oh, okay, so this makes sense, like to know one another. Like if I'm, you know, by yourself, you're knowing Christ. Yes. And and it's the same with the husband and the wife. Yes. But it's it's geared vertical yeah. and then horizontal. Right. And think about that. Think about how if. The vertical is constant. How easy the horizontal is. Right? Just, just going to be easy. Who has the mic? Somebody else got the mic. Huh. Okay, Donna did marvelous. And then, hey, we've got a mic, mic up front. Hey, ladies up front, ladies up front. She raised her hand. You, Courtney snuck. She did like she went up another inch past Donna. <laughs> Go ahead on, Donna. Okay, so I'm going back to the adultery. So God said in his commandments, do not commit adultery. Then I understand that, uh, as you explained, it was a commerce, economic type of thing when the kings took uh, other wives. But weren't they committing adultery before? Absolutely. Every, so, every added right, marriage I, I was adultery. Right, I get that. I get that. But And you said that they're believers. So... And they're raggedy, but I still don't get how it perpetuated and how it was okay. I, I, you know, and then today, if we were to do that, is it because we know? Well, they knew too, right? And they did it anyway. They did well. So is, they committed adultery. They, so now, they, so now. But it was for the business of commerce and perpetuating the seed, correct? Right. But it was a bad seed. Uh, Lisa, stop talking. I love you, but y'all, y'all can argue on the way home. I'm not going to argue with her. Uh, no. So I'm trying Think to, about it. I'm I'm trying to can, wrap I'm, it I, I, around. Oh, okay, so, now, so we're not living in that situation in America. Right, right. So you're just hypothesizing. No, I, I don't understand. Okay. I'm not even, I'm trying to figure it out. Well, that's what you're doing, you're hypothesizing. Aren't we continuing to... To when we're told to go out and spread the gospel, that's spreading a seed. That's the good seed. That's Christ in us. So again, and Christ was. Yeah, I'm. I'm done. That's okay. You just got to think it through. <clears throat> so let's go back to the framework of marriage. Outside of Christ, outside of God, was certainly much more practical, economic, and and then it was. Uh, a social construct for the preservation of of uh, of prominent persons in the tribe or uh, wealthy persons in society to perpetuate their seed. That was a historical reality. There's no doubt about that. The Bible just doesn't hide it. Okay? So, So think about it. 
Now just think about this with me. Now go stay here alone, but I want you to think about it. You know, Abraham and Sarah, they get no. I mean, you know, Sarah could have just stayed on her knees and just kept waiting on God. And she looked over at Hagar and go, got a plan here. Because that had worked in culture with other people in their era. Proxy mothers were very common in that era. Because the mother wasn't a woman who wasn't able to have a child for herself. Then you take one of the women that you are over. Remember, Hagar's a slave. So now you have a surrogate son through Hagar, your slave, that you get to raise in love. That was Moses. Y'all keeping up with me? That was Moses in Pharaoh's house. Um, And, you know, God used that. And then, uh, you know, so Moses got a son. I mean, Abraham got a son by Sarah and Hagar. Two two heirs, right? And and God works with that. We we know we're dealing with an Isaac sort of Ishmael paradox and tension there, but God works with it, right? We're sin abound. Grace doth much more abound. God's going to work with it. That's, that's going to be a, a grace paradigm. We're going to see that. And so you, you see that in the judges. Some, some men had 70 sons, right? 70 sons. It had to be more than one woman. I mean, I did eight with one woman, but 70, but you, you know, you got to be a super Amazonian woman to do 70. I mean, like you super bad to do 70. So, but my point is, is so uh, polygamy was prominent. God blinked at it. It was adultery, but he blinked. You keeping up with me? Right. This is society. This is society. This was society back then. It curtailed significantly when Christ came because the Christian church really put a cap on that as much as it could in countries where Christianity was able to shape the law after the word of God and the intentionality of scripture. That makes sense, right? So as we being a Judeo-Christian country and many others Judeo-Christian, we chopped that thing way down to one man, one woman, as it was in the beginning. In the beginning, it was not so, right? But that adultery was committed, was, was, was obvious. Polygamy is adultery. But there you go. That's how that was. Let me see here. Courtney, I'll get to the men shortly. I wanted to go back to the four A's of, di- of divorce. Mm-hmm. And uh, people often think when they hear like abuse, you think about physical abuse. But does that also include emotional abuse? Absolutely. And as far as addiction to think people often think about addiction to drugs. Does that include addiction to like money or like chasing goals and stuff like that as well? Right. So I I just said addiction, but addiction is going to always work out to where you are misusing the your body. And it's always going to start psychologically, but it's going to end up physical. So in that a husband and wife are called to have a relationship that is spiritual, psychological, emotional, physiological, um, where we are now devoting ourselves to other things at that level, we are moving towards a kind of spiritual adultery, a kind of abandonment, because now, again, addiction is an abandonment sort of precursor. And now we're experiencing that spacing between the two. 
And once that spacing is there, now we're also experiencing levels of hostility and variance. That, that follows, right? If there's a spacing development, developing because one person is in an d- addictive behavior pattern, what that's going to show up in the relationship is like that individual has love for something else greater than his spouse. And this is what Jesus meant when he says, no man can love two persons. You're going to despise one whole, you're going to love and hate the other. And that's what the spouse will begin to feel when that person is moving in a direction of having a priority over that individual. You'll feel that space, you'll feel that enmity, you'll feel that separation, you'll feel that hostility or variance or antipathy, and it will show up characteristically in, a, in an abusive expression. That's just, that's like natural. You guys do know that, right? People who've been through it. I grew up in it. Right. It's, you're creating a hell when that occurs. You do know that. It's the worst thing in the world for children, too, by the way. Did that help, Courtney? All right. So my question would be, um, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So if you're evolved enough and your relationship with with the Lord is such that you're going horizontal, and it would seem like you wouldn't, if you wanted to have that banner of protection over your marriage, you would want to be very, um, to Paul's point, either be alone so that you could keep doing that, or if the Lord has two or three, you know, two or three with Christ in the middle, uh, bring somebody who is evenly yoked or is horizontally going to the throne room where you would have that protection, that banner over your marriage where you could be stronger and like pray for each other and lift each other up. It seems like the treasure is, is it to really cling to that and then just keep going horizontal until the Lord ordains or divinely brings somebody in your life where you can be strengthened for his kingdom. Otherwise, you're probably stronger for his kingdom by just going straight to the throne and not being distracted to try and, you know, drag something along that's not could change or could not change. Absolutely. And there are going to be two conditions that predicate, that predicate that principle. The first condition is that if you are pursuing Christ for yourself and you understand the beauty of that solitude and the freedom that comes with it, obviously, um, that is going to, um, that is going to show up in, in one of two ways is going to show up in a sense of celibacy, freedom from that sexual drive at, at levels that can be distracting. Or someone being brought into the relationship that is compatible to the hierarchical principle that you have with God so that when they enter in, that's an augmentation, an enhancement, not an in- inhibition. Does that make some sense? Very good. Um, so another female, another female has a marvelous, and then we'll get, we'll get to the guys in a second. Pastor Gestand, um, I want to ask a question and I hope that you will take me seriously. It depends on how long you take to ask the question. You got 10 seconds. You said you talked, uh, you mentioned the four A's of, of, of divorce. When I was growing up, um, I heard only adultery, 
was um, an abandonment. When you mentioned, you said, uh, while psychologically abuse and addiction seem fine to me, my question is, until there has been actual fornication by the abusing spouse or the addicted spouse, is the wife free to leave her husband? Because in the churches that I attended, I never ever heard a pastor say that I'm aware of it was okay to get a divorce for abuse or addiction, only for adultery. Yeah, you process it out, certainly. You process it out at length. This is something that takes a long time working through. This is not a five-minute deal, and it really uh, needs to be carefully dialogued with people who have not been in it so that you are sympathetic to people who have been in it. And when well, people, I, I am sympathetic, sir. And, okay, I, and, this, and like this, I so said, he, emotionally, I, I like the idea of being able to leave if there's abuse well, who or cares addiction. about the emotional part? I'm, but, I'm, but I'm getting ready to lay down. I'm wondering if, based on what the scriptures say, I just don't see it. Okay, and, then, and, and for you, it would be important that if you ever get married, that you continue not to see it because you, you're going to be locked into that. Well, help um, me get unlocked. You don't need to be unlocked. You're not married. You can hold to that position. There are people in here that probably would, that would not agree with me at marriage for no reason, for any cause, for any cause. There are people who would hold the position. That's old school. No matter if they're committing adultery, they can't, they, they, there's no reason to divorce. You hold on to them at all costs. Once you tie that knot, you lock it in. And then when you debate with them and you try to show them scripture and un, help them understand why there are departure clauses laid out in scripture, uh, they don't want to see it at all. Then you go, okay, we can stop. I, I got it. I got it. You well, don't, I want to be, I'd like you to help me to see. I don't think, I don't think you will. And, it, and it's okay if you don't. Here's what I'm getting ready to say. For me, if I see, if a person abandons their spouse. That's clear. Paul has already talked about that. I got that. Right. And that abandonment will adumbrate things like abuse. I don't know what adumbrate means. It covers that. Because what, what is abandonment other than abuse of the relationship? No, I understand that. He, he mentioned that, but he didn't say about physical abuse or addiction. Think about, think about what you're saying. This is why logic has to come into play. That's, that, that, I'm, so, I'm not so, trying to be contentious. I just really want to understand because I have talked to women and if I could help them, you know, process, so I'd like to be able to do girl, so. you better get your tail out of that marriage real quick. That's my interpretation. Get out real quick. Don't ever let a man beat on you. I agree ever. with that. I agree with that on, from, I agree with that from a sociological point of view, but I don't hear the Bible saying that. Then don't say it. Or even inferring that. I'm not sure, though. And I, I need some biblical evidence. Yeah, no, you don't. No, you don't. You, if, you tell, uh, if you tell someone to get out of a situation where they're in danger of being harmed perpetually, relentlessly, with the potential of it scaling up to death, you've done your job. If that, if that individual moves towards divorcing that individual because they don't want to stay in that relationship, let them work that out. Well, then why aren't more pastors saying I this? Don't, I, I know a lot of them are, and I don't think that you know that. Okay. Okay, there we go. So, well, Thank you very much yeah, for your time. Yeah, no, I put those four A's up. They're going to stay up with me. 
And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's only because I recognize the outcome. Also recognize other things too, and I'm not going to go into them in too many more details, but there'll be a scenario where a mother will have children and her spouse is rotten, just rotten, but she needs help raising those children. She's done a few years, three, four, five, maybe six or seven, who knows? God gives them different grace for that, of trying to take care of them babies. Then a good person comes along. And after much counsel and much help by leadership, we deemed that it would be good for those boys to have a father in the home instead of a father not in the home. We're willing to work with that. And we've been doing that for years at Grace. So one of the things that I would state and, and, and with Marlis's trepidation and other people's, because I don't have it, because what, what, what I've done is promoted marriage. I've promoted marriage, but what I'm promoting is good marriage, if you can see that concept. So you, I've thought about how raggedy marriages have been for so long in America, and that if all of them were either uh, stuck in a prison sentence where the spouses are so raggedy they are hurting each other? How horrible a testimony is that? How horrible a testimony? What kind of children is that going to produce? Or the other one where they get divorced and never remarry again. Never remarry again. You got all these divorces and all these little babies running around with no daddies. And yet there are men that are really willing to take on the banner of loving those children in the adoptive paradigm that Christ did for us and help protect those little boys and girls from having to grow up without a parent in this predatory culture in which I live. So I'm like very thankful that I was able to see that kind of covering paradigm in my uh, marriage teaching over the years. I would much rather facilitate protecting the children. Remember, largely marriage is about the children. It's about the children. Did that make some sense? Right. And this is what I love about couples who knew how to stay married for the children's sake. You know, she went to class and started learning some judo and some karate and some taekwondo. And she went to the shooting range and she developed some skill sets. And so that fool stayed over in that part of the room while she took care of raising those kids. And I'm proud of her. She prayed in Jesus name, read her Bible, but she was ready to give him a judo chop if he thought he could come in and abuse her. I'm proud of her. Right. I don't live in it. I'm the wrong pastor. I grew up in massive abuse. I grew up in, in massive abuse. I'm like, I'm the wrong one to play ideological abstract games around that kind of stuff, because I know what it does to boys and girls when you're in a home with that kind of stuff. I also know the danger of leaving young men and women uncovered without a head too long because the parent one of the parents was never meant to be a parent. Do you understand what I just stated? Right. So I'm, I'm willing to suffer those consequences before the Lord for, for that interpretation. Um, because I see how gracious God was in the Old Testament with a lot of that raggedy stuff that went on. I'm just saying if the kids did not ask to come here, they did not ask to come here. 
We brought them in because of our selfish orge and eros. Right. And then they, we get them here. Then husbands and wives act an absolute fool. Somebody got to care for them. First, we got to protect them away from that fool. And then we got to put them in a position where they can be taken care of. And in some cases, that's the joyful reuni- reunification uh, with a husband, wife in the home. That can be a blessing. How many young men and young women are thankful for stepdads and stepmoms? Pray it through. Pray it through. Thank you, Marlis. Who has a mic? Um, Do we get our females, all females, get exhausted first, and then we can go to the brothers? Do you have a mic? Well, well that's because you did this. Y'all be tripping. So my question is, uh, just because it happened recently, last weekend, and not that it happens often, is mostly my extended family as a Latin woman, and then even people of the world, when they find out I'm not married and don't have kids, how can I give an answer to kind of shut it down and not look like a grumpy single woman that needs to get some because the questions and their answers annoy me? So how do I respond to their, you know, since I'm a woman, like my whole purpose is to be a mom and the fact that I'm not married, how do I give a shut it down answer. Unfortunately, in our churches as well, um, Christ is not held in high view. Christ is not held in high view. That's true across every subject matter we deal with. The Christian church is so used to talking about things as if Christ is not present, adequate, or needed. So the whole dialogue just is around things. Girl, like you need to be married. What's wrong with you? How come you ain't married? Girl, uh, uh, like Jesus just don't even exist for her. Like, like, the, like the Holy Spirit ain't hanging out with her. And, you know, she doesn't dwell in the bosom of the Father and enjoy his greats. And I know she does. I've been knowing her for a long time. And I know how God is with us when you're in a single state. He keeps you well. Um, just tell them, look, I'm married to Jesus and I'm waiting on Jesus to send somebody in the flesh. I'm married to Jesus. Huh? You got it, girl. That's right. And, and keep, keep using that hot Latina sauce in your answer, too. I got Latina grandkids. I love the way my Latina daughters be talking. That's that hot stuff. Tell them, I'm waiting on, I'm waiting on Jesus to send the right one. When he come, we good. I, 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 no, I want to finish well. Right? I want to finish well. I agree. I totally agree. I get it. They care for you. So don't, don't let it turn into um, animosity because, you know, the tension of, of waiting and then trying to give an answer to him. But you know how our folks are. They can get, you can actually ask them, do you think Jesus is enough? Put it back on him because he is. It's, it's a challenge to be single. We know this, but Jesus is enough. All right. A couple more questions. Females, males. Mario, I'll start with Mario. You got, okay. um, this is in the context of some of the other questions. Um, what God has put together, let no man put apart. I've had trouble answering people clearly the two halves of that, they argue, well, God didn't put together this marriage. That's one. And the other one is, anytime you are divorced, it's like, well, a man divorced you. 
So what is Jesus saying and how do you exegete that properly for uh, those that want to argue it? It's not to be argued. That's, I, yeah, people who like to argue just like to argue. They do. People who like to argue just like to argue. And what that means is unless you say things their way, they're not going to agree with you and they're going to continue arguing. Right, so obviously what Jesus was saying, he predicated what God has joined together, let no man break asunder, by giving the original design before the fall. The original design before the fall, when we weren't sinners, when we didn't have the impulses of selfishness driving us in our pre lapsarian state. Righteousness dwelt and ran through our veins and pulses as Adam and Eve. And there was nobody else. I say this all the time. There's no way Adam could have committed adultery. It wasn't nobody else. What, it was just Adam and Eve. Eve couldn't have committed adultery. It wasn't nobody else. And that's what Jesus meant. If you're going to get married, you really want to be able to go, there's nobody else. That's called the ideal. But that was, that was only true before the fall. After the fall, after sin enters in, everything is culpable of violation. Everything is culpable. He still went on to say, except for fornication sake. So he wasn't saying once you get married, there's no, no, there's never going to be any kind of grounds for that marriage to be dissolved. He was saying that when you enter in, you should enter in with this intentionality. And I've never, ever married anyone who said, now, pastor, when you do the vows and you get down and you get down to that part where it says, tell death do us part. Would you just put a little caveat in there? If he does not pay all the bills on time or if she burns the chicken I'm out right so you know everybody goes in under the presupposition we're never going to be divorced everybody does and if you don't go in under that presupposition you committed a fraudulent act you committed a fraudulent act. But what till death do us part does not do. It does not endow you with the capacity for the immutability of staying in that marriage, apparently. Right? It just does not endow you with that. You, you, you may mean it five years later, ten years later, you're out for whatever that is. And all that is proving is that you are a sinner. Is that what you are? See, we don't like to talk like that. So, ladies and gentlemen, guess what you're marrying? The only person that you can depend on being with you till death do you part is Jesus. It would be a great thing if it, if it works out that your spouse stays with you especially if they stay with you and actually love you. I'm not real sure about anything short of love, personally. 
I'm just not. I think that if we are married and we call it a marriage, ipso facto love actually frames, filters, and processes that marriage. The moment love is not there, for me, it's not a marriage. That's for me. I already told you, I don't believe marriage is just signing a contract at the bottom line and it doesn't have the spirit of life inside those vows that you made. To me, that would be no different than saying you're born again because you prayed the sinner's prayer, but the Holy Ghost did not invade your heart, change your soul, take out that stony heart, put in a heart of flesh, write his laws in your heart and his mind, and the Holy Ghost reside in your spirit to make Christ a reality for you. Hence, you are truly born again. Just because you say to set the sinner's prayer doesn't make you truly born again. Just because you signed on the dotted line does not turn that into a marriage. Am I making some sense, saints? Right. You can be married on paper and it have absolutely no substantial, vital reality when it comes to the twain becoming one flesh at the profundity of the mind, heart, soul, spirit, understanding, and conduct. And you'll know it too. Like love is not just something you say. Love is not just something. I love you is not love. My argument is always the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he sent. And he came. And he lived and he died and he rose again. And he went to glory and he sent the Holy Ghost. And he really did invade our lives and he raised us from the dead and he gave us life and faith in Christ and he married us. He said, you're mine and I'm yours. And we know it in the depths of our soul. That's a real marriage. That's the difference between a professing Christian and a possessing Christian. Did that make some sense? Did that make some sense? Right. Uh, so when, when we're dealing with the nuances of marriages and, and the levels of brokenness that we're all dealing with, I don't live in trepidation of legal expectations and parameters that church folk put on it because I've seen how one-dimensional that kind of legalistic interpretation can be and it can just render families absolutely dry. It can put people in situations, particularly women with children, where they are completely disadvantaged by a very narrow legalistic interpretation of the text that does not constitute a real vital Christ-exalting sacrificial love on the part of that husband to both provide, protect, and then procure seed. Does that make some sense? Well, I've seen how they've been left high and dry, supposed to be happy about it. No, no, that's not marriage. That was the perpetration of a fraud. That's what that was. The perpetration of the... And, and they'll answer for that on the day of judgment. And every one of us, married or not, will have to determine how well we persevere in that fraudulent relationship. Did that make some sense? Because you know it's fraudulent. The people that are listening to me online, hundreds are listening right now. They'll know the fraudulent nature of the marriage because the twain are violating, they're sinning against God. Well, if a man is sinning against God in his adultery, in his abuse, in his uh, addiction, his abandonment, of course he's sinning against you. He doesn't care. 
Or if the woman is doing it, she doesn't care. She has no qualms about not being married to God nor being married to you other than the benefits they get out of having the same last name. Does that make some sense? Right. So actually, if you don't know it, what I am doing is exalting the true spirit and nature of marriage. I'm demanding that marriage be understood for what it is, not just a flat line, black, white document that you sign on the bottom and pretend you are. It is a vital living reality constituted as something that God gives in order to preserve the unity of the two as they propagate seed and give that seed the best opportunity it can to grow up with the Imago Dei represented in male and female. And we have jacked that up royally. We jacked it up royally, as you guys know. And, uh, and grace is there to uh, facilitate all levels of brokenness. I have had beautiful scenarios where couples have divorced uh, professing Christians and went their way and engaged in the casting of their lust to the wind for decades leaving the children just high and dry because mom and daddy had not sowed enough of their oats prior to saying I do. Then they came up under the preaching of the gospel in this place. And one of them got truly saved and started praying for the other one that was out there living like hell. For years, we would pray. I'm like, man, this, this woman, she's, she's still praying for that fool. And I mean, he was a fool. Papa was a Rolling Stone. He was the one that made that song up. She kept praying for him. And then one day she said, he wants to talk to you. Yeah, this is a real true story. I can tell you a bunch of them. They had been divorced for a long time. The kids all grew up. And one day I get a call and said he had been listening to the preaching. And he wanted to get right. And he wasn't sure if that getting right with God would fix the relationship with him and his children's mother. That's what she was called at that time. But after a while, this brother started coming to church and hearing the gospel. And I would talk with him every month or so because he, he was out on the road, an entertainer. And the next thing I know, they're talking again because she didn't remarry. And they got remarried. So God can work. Can he not work? Right. And, and they, go, they went around for many, many years talking about how, how they tore it up and how he tore it up and how he discovered God's mercy and grace in a woman that prayed for him after he tore it up royally. And uh, they had a few years to go and he went on to be with the Lord in glory. All these things are possible. See what I'm saying? Because we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with sinners. Why we need to be patient with what, whatever direction we go in in the area of dealing with the precariousness of marriage, we need to be very careful and, and not to neglect. So here's an axiom for me. The axiom for me is if you don't have any children in the marriage, you're not hurting anybody but yourselves. Go find your own island to live on. I don't care what you do. Protect those children. And if, you, if you're so self-negating that you are willing to harm yourself to death, 
then, then let those kids go get preserved by somebody else that can help them because you're not helping them. Those kids did not ask to be here. And if church folk are way too cold to understand what I'm talking about in terms of preparing and uh, protecting children, you, 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 it's really easy for me to see how in a few years the church will buy into all of this transgenderism. With their pseudo fake love for kids. Y'all hear what I'm saying? How valiant, how valiant are moms and dads to do all they can to take care of these babies until they reach a level of maturity and adulthood. How valiant, whether you're a single mother or a single father, how valiant you are to pour your life into these kids. They didn't ask to come here. They don't get to become collateral damage because of your foolishness. That's right. Long ago, and we, we don't have the conditions here to meet that, but many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, the church was so desperate to take up the kids that they started orphanages. That's what they did. Protect these kids from these crazy moms and dads that just want to have babies and then run out and cast their lust to the wind. Give us those babies. Am I making some sense? Right, so I, don't, I really don't mind if you disagree with me or not. Um, anyhow, God is good. Is God good or what? He's real good. All right. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the questions that come from my brothers and sisters. Um, grace us to know what mercy is. Um, grace us to know what mercy is and how to apply it in a way that can work for the betterment of all of us, uh, for the redemption and restoration and reconciliation of all of our brokenness and, uh, and for the unity and fullness and manifestation and expression of marriages um, that are um, on the launching pad getting ready to enter into this grand institution that you have set up. Oh, Lord, give them everything that they need. Help us to be what we're called to be. Give us traveling mercies. Prepare us for Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. <laughs>